And understanding those things helps us make more sense of Jesus' works throughout the rest of John's gospel. Now, the passage that we read today, chapter 5, verses 19 through 47, has some things in common with chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. However, it also has some things that make it a little bit different. So, for example, in John 5, 19 through 47, Jesus is speaking. It's not just John writing about him. This is first person. It's straight from the horse's mouth. On top of that, John chapter 5, verses 19 through 47, is the longest uninterrupted speech by Jesus in the entire gospel of John. That must mean it's pretty important. Thirdly, the word son is used to describe Jesus 13 times in the entire book. But eight of those occur here. And that's a pretty big theme. Fourth, this passage sheds significant light on Jesus's relationship with the religious leaders. And that conflict is what shapes so much of what remains of Jesus's earthly ministry. And then finally, in learning more about that conflict with the religious leaders, we may learn a little bit about ourselves as well. Because the same things that rubbed the religious leaders the wrong way 2,000 years ago, they often rub people like us the wrong way today. So what exactly is it that gets the religious leaders so worked up? What is it that we take offense to as well? Well, it has to do with Jesus' claims about his authority, Jesus' claims about judgment, and Jesus' claims that he is the only and exclusive way to God the Father. So open your Bibles to John chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the great privilege that we have of coming together and hearing from your word. Uh, thank you for the privilege that we just had to witness Lexi's baptism. Um, just an incredibly life-changing moment, uh, heart-changing moment, um, to see that person, um, the old person, dipped under water and the new person raised to life in Christ. Uh, thank you for Lexi. Um, thank you for the people that have played such a big role in her life, um, whether it's the Brittings or the Scots or the Ellsworths, uh, people that have ministered to her here at Prairie View. We're grateful for their time and their efforts and their prayers for Lexi. And Father, be with us this morning as we continue our worship in other ways. I pray that all the things we say, all the things we do, would bring you glory and bring you honor. And Father, thank you for your Son. Your Son is our means to life, is our way to life, our way to resurrection. And we are so grateful that your Son died on the cross for us. So Father, be with us this morning. Help us to hear from your word in a way that honors you. And to leave here as people eager to love you, eager to serve you, and eager to show your glory and show your beauty to the world around us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after his conversation with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, Jesus returns to the town of Cana. The first miracle took place in Cana. That's when he turned water into wine. And in Cana, he meets an official whose son is at the point of death. In his desperation, the official comes to Jesus 
and request his healing abilities. Now, Jesus doesn't even have to see the boy or touch the boy. He heals the boy simply by speaking from a distance. As a result, the official's entire household believes in Jesus. And then the story ends. But then from Cana, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, which he does a lot in the Gospel of John, especially for religious feasts. And while Jesus is in Jerusalem, he heals a man that John calls an invalid, someone who is either blind, lame, or paralyzed, maybe a combination. This man had been lying by a pool for years, hoping to be healed. And Jesus does just that. But he also commands the man to take up his bed and walk, perhaps for the first time in his entire life. But this story doesn't end the way the previous story ended. The first one, after the official son was healed, well, people believed, Jesus went on about his way, no problem. But this ending isn't quite so smooth. The religious leaders confront the freshly healed man, demanding to know who healed him, and even more specifically, demanding to know who told him to take up his bed. They eventually discover that Jesus told the man to do this, and the religious leaders are furious. Why? What's the big deal? Who cares that he took up his bed? What's the problem? Well, we see it in John chapter 5, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That's the problem. Their problem is that Jesus commanded the man to take up his bed on the wrong day. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And they considered taking up your bed to be a form of work. Everyone knows that. The freshly healed man knew that. Jesus knew that, too. But their response certainly tells us something about the religious leaders' priorities. They don't care that an obvious and wonderful work of God has occurred in the life of a suffering person right before their very eyes. All they care about is making sure people obey their understanding of the law. Thus, when Jesus opposes them, they begin persecuting him. But then look at Jesus' response. Verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus dismisses the religious leaders' criticism. They have failed to understand that the Sabbath wasn't intended to be some heavy, awful burden for God's people. It was intended for their good. It was intended for their benefit. But they clearly care far less about the well-being of that suffering man than God does. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But then what Jesus says next is what really takes the religious leaders to a new level of anger and opposition. Jesus says that he would never do something that opposes God's desires, because God is his Father, and he and the Father work together. Now, they take that to be blasphemy. 
putting himself on the same level as God, which is a far more serious crime than just ignoring the Sabbath. I mean, who in their right mind would claim to be equal with God? In the pages of Scripture, that's a death wish. For example, consider Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18. We read there. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Isaiah says that trying to compare yourself to God, putting yourself on the same level as God, that's wickedness. That's idolatry. And yet that's what Jesus has just done. Think back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought himself to be on the same level of God. And how'd that work out for him? Not so well, at least when it comes to the Exodus. Think about someone like Herod in Acts chapter 12. Someone exclaims that Herod is a god. And Herod doesn't say it himself, but he also doesn't deny it. And then he's struck down. But Jesus doesn't say anything to calm the religious leaders' tempers. He doesn't say anything to reject their criticism. And from this point forward, they're not just trying to scrutinize Jesus. They're not just trying to make life harder on Jesus. They want him dead. As one commentator puts it, from this point forward, Jesus is a marked man in the Gospel of John. Now, if he had wanted to stay out of trouble, now would have been a really good time to get back on the religious leader's good side. Now would be an excellent opportunity to compliment them, butter them up, make them feel good about themselves. But Jesus doesn't do any of those things. In fact, the speech he gives only adds fuel to the fire. He does that by bringing up those three unpopular things we mentioned a few moments ago. Authority, judgment, and the claim that only he is the way to the Father. Now, some of your Bibles may have verses 19 through 47 labeled something along the lines of the authority of the Son. Now, that word authority is the first thing the religious leaders are wrestling with. I mean, who does this guy think he is? What makes him so special that the Sabbath, at least the way they understood it, didn't apply to him? What gives him the right to claim this special father-son relationship with God when anyone else who said this would be considered a blasphemy, would be killed? Well, it's often noted that human beings in general, we tend to have a problem with authority, don't we? Even more specifically, we Americans tend to have a problem with authority. I mean, our country was founded by a bunch of rebellious colonies sticking it to the man. Over in England. Well, Christians would say that the earliest example of humanity's problem with authority goes back a lot further than that. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The temptation that finally pushed Adam and Eve over the edge to eat the fruit was when Satan said God was just trying to keep them down. He painted God to be some wicked, power-hungry, oppressive authority. Now, it's true that in some sense, sinful human beings have a problem with authority in general. But it's also true that we're selective in our problems with authority. There are some authorities that we're willing to submit to and some that we aren't. That's true of the religious leaders here. 
Their problem isn't so much the idea of authority in general. Their problem is with Jesus' claim to authority. You know, it's not that hard to see the same thing at work today in our world. Politics is a wonderful example. When your party is in charge, it's all about respectful submission. But when somebody else's party is in charge, the only noble thing to do is resist. But here, the religious leaders are being selective with their pushing back against authority. They're okay with submitting to God the Father's authority, at least as they understand it. But they're not okay with Jesus claiming authority over them. But the problem with that, as we're about to see here, is that if you don't accept Jesus' authority, you're actually rebelling against God's authority. So let's look at the words of Jesus, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So after those accusations of blasphemy, Jesus offers two things in his defense. Not that he really needs to defend himself to begin with. I mean, after all, it's only blasphemy if it's not true, right? Well, his first defense is his unity with God the Father. He makes it clear that he is not some independent religious teacher gone rogue. He is completely and perfectly unified with God, totally in step with the will of God. We read last week in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work perfectly in step with God's desires. In Jesus's earthly ministry, we see perfect worship, perfect submission and perfect obedience to the authority of God, the father. But they're not just united, unified, united, unified, unified. They're not just unified in their will. God the Father and Jesus the Son are unified in their perfect love for each other. 
Now think about that. Because of this perfect love between God the Father and Jesus the Son, you can't separate them. Jesus says they are a package deal. The Father loves the Son. The Father wants the Son to be honored. And it's true the other way around as well. But it's not just Jesus' unity with God the Father. Jesus claims that he has the authority of judgment. Jesus says that one of two things will happen to every single person. Resurrection to life or resurrection to death. And then here comes one of those claims where Jesus says that he is the exclusive way to God the Father. That it all revolves around him. It's all about hearing him. It's all about believing in him. It's all about responding to him. That's what determines judgment. Now, the good news, of course, is that Jesus' judgment is just. It's good. It's righteous. It's holy. And in fact, those who believe in Jesus, like we talked about with Lexi's baptism, those who believe in Jesus are already given new life but they also look forward to eternal life. And those who reject Jesus are, in a sense, already dead and one day will face eternal judgment. Now, judgment is one of those things that only God is supposed to be able to do. Only God can forgive sins, right? Well, Jesus claims that he can. That's an act of judgment. God the Father has given Jesus the Son of Man, this authority, like the prophets foretold long ago. So after that initial confrontation about the Sabbath, Jesus has only ramped things up that much more. He's no longer trying to get the religious leaders off his back. He's not trying to stay on their good side. And Jesus knows that this will eventually result in his death, but he's not interested in saving himself anyway. That's not the point. So let's continue Jesus' words in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, 
Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's almost like Jesus looks at the religious leaders and says, hey, you know what? I know these claims I'm making are pretty big. I know it's a lot to take in. But let me give you three reasons why you should believe what I'm saying. Let me give you three witnesses that verify that everything I'm saying is true, that I'm not just making this stuff up about my authority, my judgment, and that I am the only way to the Father. Witness number one, come to the stand, it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist said all these things were true about Jesus, all the same things. He called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says in John 1, 34, word for word, this is the Son of God. And yet the religious leaders rejected him. Okay, how about another witness? How about Jesus's works? I mean, Jesus is doing things that clearly only God can do. Turning water into wine and healing that official son in Cana just by speaking. Healing that invalid down by the pool. The proof is in the pudding, right? Well, the religious leaders rejected the works, too. How about one more witness? How about Scripture? These guys love Scripture. Jesus claims that the entire Old Testament looks forward to him. Moses, who they treasure so dearly and claim to know so well. Well, Moses wrote about him. But the religious leaders rejected that, too. And that's why Jesus gives that stinging indictment in verse 38. They do not have God's word abiding in them. Because they have rejected Jesus. Jesus says they do not love God. They do not know God. They have not heard God. Because the only way someone can claim to love God and know God and hear God is if they love him, know him, and listen to him. Those are exclusive claims. Now, on a quick side note. Why do you think Jesus is so harsh with the religious leaders in this passage? I mean, if you think back to last week in John chapter 4, with that Samaritan woman, he was much more gentle and patient and pastoral, even though she didn't understand who he was. Why is he being so mean to these guys? Well, at some level, she could claim ignorance. She was an outcast, not a religious leader of God's people. She may not have known about John the Baptist, but... They did. She may not have seen the water turned into wine at Cana. They might, she may not have seen the invalid man walking. But they did. And she likely wouldn't claim to know scripture the way that they did. The point is that the religious leaders can't claim ignorance. Their problem is not a lack of information. Their problem is good, old-fashioned, Garden of Eden-style rebellion. That's why in verse 40, Jesus says that they refuse to come to him. They refuse to come to him. And then in verse 44, he says they'd rather have glory from man than glory from God. Now, again, even as believers, I think we're more like the religious leaders than we sometimes want to admit. I mean, think about it. If we actually take the time to read all of Jesus's words, we're quite likely to get offended. Why? Because some of them are hard. 
Some of them are tough pills to swallow. And yet sometimes we become selective about which words we'll read, whose authority we'll submit to, and when we'll submit to it. We pick and choose which words of Jesus we'll listen to, and we submit to the ones that we like. We might even specifically sweep some words under the rug. Words about judgment, words about sin, the kinds of words that he's talking about here. Well, may we as believers repent of that sin and resist that temptation. Or maybe you're a believer who wrestles with those exclusive claims that Jesus makes about himself. You don't like the thought of Jesus being the only means through which humans can love God, know God, and hear God. You like the false comfort, that warm and fuzzy feeling of inclusivity. Many people believe different things, and many people worship different gods, but one day we'll all end up in the same place. Well, it sounds nice, but if that's you, you're buying into a lie, and you're not helping anyone by repeating the lie. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we read, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or perhaps you don't consider yourself a believer. If so, I challenge you to wrestle with this passage. You may be told things like, well, Jesus didn't really claim to be God. He didn't really consider himself God. The church just made that up after he died. Well, these words seem pretty clear. Or maybe the issue isn't so much that you don't believe. Maybe you really do believe that Jesus came and lived and died, and maybe you even believe he rose, but you simply refuse to submit to him. Like those religious leaders, you're just a good old-fashioned rebel. Well, if that's you, don't ignore Jesus's words about judgment, but also don't forget that Jesus specifically came to turn rebels like you and me into sons and daughters of God. Now, of course, not all authority is good. There are bad people out there in positions of power who abuse their authority in a manner that hurts people created in God's image, in a manner that dishonors God himself. And there are circumstances where we should resist authority. But Jesus is different. Because as we read about Jesus' authority, we're also reading about the man who went to a cross. Don't forget that we do not worship a wicked or power-hungry or selfish king. We worship a king who submitted himself to God's authority to the point of death, even death on a cross. He submitted himself to the authority of the religious leaders who hated him. He submitted himself to the authority of Pilate and those Roman soldiers who nailed him to a cross. And he submitted himself to that authority for sinners like us, that we might have the right to become children of God. There are bad authority figures out there, but Jesus isn't one of them. In fact, in the big scheme of things, in eternity, he's the one authority figure worth submitting to. And in submitting to Christ's authority, that's how we find our greatest joy. That's how we find our greatest freedom. That's how we're given eternal life. So may we as believers leave here this morning 
Submitting to the authority of the Son. Submitting to the authority of the Father. Knowing that that authority figure died for sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son. It is amazing to think that Jesus has all the authority that you give him, that he has all the worship of the angels, he has all the glories of heaven, he has all the power beyond what we can even imagine. And yet, even with all that authority, even with all that glory, even with all that power, he goes to a cross for us. He dies for sinners like us. Father, as we read these words, I pray that we would worship the Son the way you call us to. That we would really believe that you have sent him and that he's worth submitting to. So, Father, be with us as we continue our time of worship. I pray that what we do here wouldn't be the only submission and worship that we offer, but that we would worship and submit in every area of our lives that we would do this in a way that honors you. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your incredible kindness, that you would die for people who don't submit, that you would die for people who don't honor you, that you would die for people who don't respect you in order that we might become sons and daughters, in order that we might become true worshipers. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.